0: pleasure uh, to be here this morning with you, friends, some from 40 years back, (laughs) some new. To be uh, in this space with you and with those who've already uh, spoken, I'm thinking of Brian Lassiter. Brian's a News student at uh, Lipscomb University and it just so happens that the last two weeks I've been poring over his uh, work from a particular project it's a wonderful thing to have a man with those capabilities working in the heart of Dixie, down there in Montgomery, Alabama. In 2017, I worked as an interim minister for a church in Jacksonville, Florida, the Argyle Church of Christ. I lost the minister, and i going to try to find a minister. So I worked with them for nine months. And we, we searched high and low. We searched east and west and north and south, trying to find the one person that God had brought together for this church. And lo and behold, at the end of the search, discovered that this person was Josh Jackson. And I told the congregation, I believe, Argyle, you've got the number one draft choice for 2017. And they said, oh, you just say that to everybody. I said, no, I'm just telling you the truth. And then for nine months, in 2018, I worked for the worked with the Long Beach Church of Christ. I said, lost the minister, and trying to find a new minister. Worked with the search committee. And sure enough, we searched high and low, east and west, north and south, trying to find the one person that God had brought to bring to the Long Beach Church of Christ and it turned out to be there and good. And I told them, I think you've got the number one draft pick of 2018. <laughs> and they said, oh, you tell that to everybody. And I said, no, I just tell it when it's true. It was so in 2017 and 2018. And so Cope says, um, you've got to finalize some things. He says, "So, what? and who would you like to pray for you? I said, anybody? Person i like to pray for me is Darren Haygood. And so I'm grateful I don't know a more spiritual man than Darren Haygood in the Long Beach Church of Christ. That community is blessed to have that man leading them. So I'm honored to be here this morning. To talk about Nabal and Abigail, I asked, a friend asked me, what are you going to do with Pepperdine? I said, I'm going to preach a sermon. I said, on what? I said, Nabal and Abigail friend was Church of Christ, born and bred, weaned on scripture. She once sat in the cradle roll high chair where she learned to love the Bible, and pat the Bible, and kiss the Bible. <laughs> My friend was raised on flannel graph Old Testament stories. VBS, she could answer all the Bible questions on Jeopardy. But when I said Nabal and Abigail, she gave me a glazed look. And then she said, who? Oh, you mean Naboth and Jezebel? And I said, no. All that training that she had was useless to help. Cradle roll, philograph, BBS, nothing to pull up. Any recollection of Nabal and Abigail. And then I said, and David. And she nodded, of course. But her eyes were still distant, and I could tell. There was no register. It was another case of biblical amnesia. And the consequences are grave. It's worse than a poor performance in Bible trivia because we've lost connections with the contexts and the plots and the characters and our places in these stories that once formed us. We once knew our way around the Bible. We didn't need paths to find 1 Samuel or Esther. When asked to describe our conversion experience, the Pentecostal would say, slain in the spirit. The Baptist would say, I had a strange warming of the heart. And we, we responded to the invitation, come study with us. We were the only people in all of Christendom who knew who, were the, who the Bereans were. Because <laughs> were more noble in character. We examined the scriptures every day to see if these things were so. And then there arose a generation who knew not the Bible, and the fog of amnesia settled upon the land. David and Abigail and Nabal. Refresh our memory. Well, our story is found in 1 Samuel 25. It's not floating out there somewhere. It's a story in 1 Samuel 25 that's built into a neighborhood. It has a context. In the neighborhood where our passage sits, on one side, 1 Samuel 24, and on the other side, 1 Samuel 26. (laughs) And in this neighborhood, David is on the rise to the kingdom. He's going to be king, and he's establishing his legitimacy against the violent resistance of Saul. And in these connecting stories, 24 and 26, David relies upon the powerful promise of God and he does not resort to violence. The story on the left, 24, has David hiding in the deep recesses of the cave when suddenly Saul enters. He comes in to relieve himself and David creeps up unnoticed, and he cuts off the edge of Saul's cape. And once both men are outside the cave, David shouts out to Saul, the Lord delivered you into my hand. Some urged me to kill you, but I have spared your life. That's the story to the south of us. And on the other side, to the north, 26, David once again does not resort to violence. Here, David and Abishai tiptoe into Saul's camp by night where they find Saul fast asleep with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. And Abishai, sensing a golden opportunity, says to David, let me smite him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I shall not need smite him a second time. That might sound to you like beautiful King James, Shakespearean (coughs) prose, but it doesn't sound like a man after God's own heart. So David rejects Abishai's counsel. He says, the Lord forbid. Grab the spear in the water jug. And David walked away. So in this neighborhood, David is on the rise to become king against the violent resistance of Saul. And in these neighboring stories, David relies on the powerful promise of God. And he doesn't resort to violence in the cave nor in the camp. But in our story, the house in the middle of the neighborhood, David acts very differently. He lives precariously close to practicing violence, which evokes the shrewd intervention of Abigail. And while the outcome of this story is reassuring, the route shows his dangerous potential, his near-the-surface destructiveness, and thus will serve as a warning for us today. He'll tell us more. Let me introduce the character. First, the dossier on the ball. His name means fool or base. You might describe him as narcissistic, self-centered, amoral, thoughtless. Everyone knows he's corrupt. He himself boasts about it. He probably grew up admiring men who shrewdly worked the system to their own benefit, cutting corners left and right and stiffing the little guys. Good people are appalled. He's compulsively cruel, he's resolute in his ignorance, he's proudly defiant, an evil man who has power. He's characterized by indifference, he's indifferent to the truth, he's indifferent to human beings. He repudiates any concern for the poor, or the weak, and he holds disdain for the powerless, which makes him exceedingly dangerous. Even his own underlings know better than he. And when Nabal's narcissistic, power-hoarding instincts threaten the community, his staff refuse to carry out his orders. <clears throat> Nabal is defined by his property. We first encounter him in terms of his possessions. He is very rich. He lives to defend his his wealth. He does as he pleases. He lives as if there is no god. There is no neighbor. There is no social responsibility. Nabal fears no man, he respects no man, he cares for no one except himself. Nabal. No and then, there's Abigail. The narrator tells us that she is intelligent and attractive. Not catwalk attractive for the male gaze, like Queen Esther in the book of, uh, Queen the book of Esther, but attractive as in the same word that the author uses for David in chapter 16 and verse 2, like the handsome man that Michelangelo chiseled for all the world to admire. Our minds should connect this woman to this man. She's a potential match for David. He and she would be an attractive couple, a subtle foreshadowing of what's to come. But their attractiveness here is not the point. Rather, it's the word that comes first. She has a good mind. And that's what gets the top billing. And all the action points to it. So what's that mean? Well, it means, for starters, that Abigail is the polar opposite of Nabal, who's a fool. I I only know how to define Abigail from her actions, which are humanitarian, Mm -hmm. wise, and rhetorically successful. She is wildly successful. Mm -hmm. She's calculated. And her timing is perfect, Abigail. And then there's David. David who's the big story. He's the big story in this lectureship. He's the big story in the Bible. But David in this story is nuanced by his relationship with these two people. And if we watch very carefully, we might see ourselves in David. So tell us the story. Well, it starts well enough. David sends a message to Nabal requesting a relationship of reciprocity. Reciprocity is the social convention of gift giving. Favor extended, gift expected. And that's how it worked in this ancient society. David wants to persuade Nabal to give gifts by reminding Nabal of David's pastoral protection favors. David and his men have been watching over the sheep and the shepherds that belong to Nabal, a practice that, by the way, is more dangerous than it sounds. There's bears and there's lions and. bad men to wrestle, and Nabal has a lot to protect. Shearing his 3,000 sheep and shearing his 1,000 goats demanded many workers and many long hours of labor, which yielded a significant financial bounty for Nabal. Protecting Nabal's employees, protecting Nabal's plantation, protecting his financial investment was worth something. And David anticipates something return because David is the leader of a ragtag army, and he had had several options already available to him. He could have been the taker instead of the protector. He could have been the thief instead of the guard. But David chose the peaceful option, an option that was beneficial for Nabal. And now David sends his messengers to appeal to Nabal's good character his goodwill, a request, and a reciprocal gift. He has protected Nabal's industry. He has preserved Nabal's wealth. And so his messengers appear before Nabal. And David's messengers say this. May we find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. We judge him polite, subordinate, and humble. But the ball, he responds like a mob boss or like an arrogant, moving mogul. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Or, there's many servants today breaking away from their masters, or Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origins I don't know? In other words, up yours. (laughs) That is to say, he's crude, he's abrupt and he's insulting. Nabal refuses to give David anything He insults David, he denies knowing David, and he impugns David's integrity. And the messengers, the messengers who have delivered the message from David to Nabal respond like Don Corleone's conciliar. Thank you for the dinner, a very pleasant evening. Have your car take us to the airport. Mr. Corleone is a man who insists on hearing bad news at once. When David hears the bad news, he responds like Michael Corleone, with fury and a pledge of violence. All the good I did for this man for nothing, for nothing. He returns evil for good. And then he says to his army, gird up your swords. Violence resisted in the cave. Violence that was resisted in the camp at night is now embraced with fire. David pledges to kill every man connected to Nabal. That's how your new international version translates it, every man. But literally, David pledges to kill everyone who pisses against the wall. I'm going to kill every pisser against the wall, which sounds crude and titillating. The same vein as Saul relieving himself in the cave in 24. And that's how we're tempted to hear it. But this language isn't intended to make 11 year old boys giggle. It's crude. It's explicit. It's akin to the A word. It's like the F bomb. It's the middle finger, or worse, it's how you speak to those that you despise. So David is stooping to the level of Naval. They go low, we go lower. Suddenly we're looking at the shootout at the O.K. Corral. We're looking at the Cuban Missile Crisis. The bully and the bully are about to fight. These brothers are out of control. Swords about to flash. Knives will find their mark. There will be blood, a mano a mano. And with the resulting blood guilt, All that God intends for David, and all that God intends to do through David, will go down the drain. David and Saul. David would not stoop to Saul's Machiavellian ways, but David's interaction with Nabal is a different story. Nabal brings out the violent worst in David, which brings us to the story's moment of crisis. Parallel to the moment of crisis that we face today, The shooting at Poway, not far from here, fits with the spike in hate-fueled attacks that are spreading throughout our country and around the world. Online radicalization linking white supremacists to terrorist violence. The San Diego gunman wrote a manifesto echoing the same kind of white supremacist views as the shooters and the attacks in the synagogues, synagogue in Pittsburgh and the mosques in New Zealand. And the latest attack came one week after the mass bombings at churches and hotels in Sri Lanka that left hundreds dead. How do we react to this acceleration of violence? In 2017, after a shooting at a Southern Baptist church near San Antonio that killed 26 people and injured 20 more, some Christian leaders called for members of their church to arm themselves, to gird up their swords. Robert Jeffress, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, said that he felt more secure knowing that members of his congregation were carrying weapons. Do we engage in personal arms buildup, imagining ourselves John Wayne or Clint Eastwood or Arnold Schwarzenegger? Does Nabal set us on a course to strategic armament? A mono, a mono. After the 2015 shooting in San Bernardino, Jerry Falwell Jr. urged his students to procure gun permits, quoting him. I've always thought that if more good people had concealed carry permits, we could end those Muslims before they walked in. Now that man is out of control. In our story, at the very moment that David comes unhinged, Abigail hurries to intervene. David's soul needs saving, and the community needs to be spared from bloodshed, because David is armed and dangerous and he is intent on a bloody revenge. It's only a thoughtful, rhetorically skilled person who stands a chance of saving everyone and everything. And into the scene steps the humanitarian, the wise Abigail. And Abigail seems to know her Bible stories too. She acts out just like Jacob, thwarting Esau's plans for a bloody revenge. She intercepts David, with donkeys that are weighed down with bread and wine and grain and cakes and the reciprocity gift of a herd of sheep. Because David is on his way to commit mass murder. 300 Christians killed in Sri Lanka and the Muslims fear retaliation. David is on the verge of shedding blood, bringing on himself a guilt that he would never escape. And just the moment before the swords flash, before the spears gleam, before countless dead bodies. Abigail reminds David of who he is. She appeals to David's better angels. She reverses the flow of the narrative, a current that was rushing into an ocean of destruction. She says these words. When God has done to you, according to all the good that God has spoken, and appointed you prince over Israel. May you have no cause for grief, no pangs of conscience, for having shed blood without cause, for carrying out your own vengeance. And David is moved by her words, and he abandons his murderous intentions, and he thanks Abigail for saving his life, for saving the future. He says, blessed be your good sense, and blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt. So who will remind us of our better angels? Amid the hateful language, the bullying, the misogyny, the racism, the rhetoric and practice of Nabal, who will remind us of our better angels? With anger on every car radio and every computer screen, fingers jabbing, fists pounding, deepening the nation's political and cultural fissures. Who will reverse the flow of the narrative? With two Americans getting angrier by the minute, and here in California and states across the country, folks are stockpiling weapons, anticipating a great battle. The Church of Jesus Christ girding themselves with swords and stockpiling weapons. Where is Abigail to remind us of our better angels? You've heard the battle cry. If Trump is impeached, there will be blood. This isn't 1859, but it's beginning to feel like a buildup to a national explosion. Our American anger has evolved into a fire fueled by the gasoline of Twitter and Facebook and MSNBC and Fox News. Positioned to metastasize into a civil war A war created by unresolved hatreds that have been brewing for years with results that could devastate us for decades to come. So who will be our Abigail? Who will remind us of who we are? Abigail redeemed David from murder and from senseless bloodshed. Who can redeem our story from ruthless barbaric ugliness? He taught us, love your enemies, Pray for those who spitefully misuse you. He taught us to say, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This could be our core ethic. It won't do to be gentle on Sunday and vote for the bloodthirsty on Tuesday. We can't offer blessings in the sanctuary and approve of curses in the halls of government. We can't kneel before the Prince of Peace and then rise to support ball. It's impossible to hatefully coerce the world into becoming gentle and kind because we only corrupt ourselves in the process. We've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you might be God's children. The military did, presented in silence on our home screens, looking youthful and well-groomed, and all the dead from wars, the school shootings even here at Pepperdine, the dead from street crimes and domestic crimes, and before it's all over, how shall we be known? What mark will we leave? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. He reminds us of who we are and presents a counter-narrative, providing a persuasive worldview that creates an alternative community identified by peace and mercy blessed are the peacemakers they shall be called the children of God may we listen to Jesus as David listened to Abigail Mm. for sure enough in the very next story David remembers exactly who he is when the Shakespearean Abishai proposes to smite Saul to the ground with one thrust of the spear and I need not two smites, David. The man after God's own heart knows to reject Abish- Abishai's counsel. God forbid! And then David turns.